Well, we are talking about humble significance today, so that fits. If you would turn with me, we have now, we're in our fifth week in the book of Philippians, and we've gotten to chapter two. So, uh, we will be reading the first four verses today, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, and please listen carefully as this is God's word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We need it now more than ever. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, today we come again to these amazing words of comfort and conviction. So we pray that we would learn from you today, that we would learn how to count others more significant than ourselves, that we would learn what it means to think of ourselves less. Teach us how to put pride to death and to receive humility as our greatest ally, all by looking to Jesus. Thank you that once again, we're learning from the inspired words of the Apostle Paul. Help us to hear them, understand them, believe them, and obey them. And so we pray, speak now through Philippians 2, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, thanks to an apparently very bored group of Norwegian sociologists, we have a wonderful study of chickens. You see, their study revealed that if you take 10 chickens, any 10 chickens, and you put them in a pen together and spread a little chicken feed on the ground, you'll witness an amazing phenomenon. In a matter of minutes, the chickens will form what the sociologists call a dominance hierarchy, or in plain language, a pecking order. Instinctively, through a series of skirmishes, they will determine who the number one chicken is, then the number two chicken, then the number three chicken, all the way down to unlucky chicken number 10. And the amazing thing is once the order is established, the number one chicken can peck at the number two chicken without any fear of retribution. Chicken number two will just take it. But then chicken number two will turn around and peck at chicken number three. And number three will take it from number two, but then hand it to number four in spades. Number four won't do anything back, but will turn around and machine gun number five. And so it goes all the way down to the, the line to that poor miserable chicken number 10, who doesn't have anyone left to pack. Terribly frustrating. See, we have no trouble understanding what the chickens are doing because we too are always trying to figure out who stands where in the pecking order. Now, most of the time we do it better than the chickens. If you were invited to a two hour social event here in town, by the time you left, you'd have a pretty good idea of what the pecking order was and where you stood in it. 
One pastor tells the story of when he was invited to a luncheon at a local bank. The president of the bank was attending his church and he thought this would be a good way to get to know the man better. However, when he arrived at the bank, he discovered there were eight other men invited to the luncheon, all fairly well-known, uh, well-off local businessmen, so 10 men total. And the conversation began and quickly turned to the following issues. Where you worked, how many sales, how many employees. The pastor congratulated himself on remembering to bring a sport coat. But when he sat down, he noticed that everyone else had on a dark suit, white shirt, red tie, and cufflinks. And when the bread was passed, it looked like a Rolex commercial. 20 minutes into the luncheon, with his sport coat and Timex watch, it was clear who was chicken number 10. That was easily discerned. Same thing happens everywhere. Sporting events, parties, reunions, church. It even goes on with pastors. I go to some conference on some spiritual issue and the discussion outside the room is how many people, how big a budget, how large a staff. And within a half an hour, the packing order is clearly defined. No one is immune to this. Almost everyone looks at other people's professions, uh, education, wardrobe, cars, homes, and tries to figure out where they fit in the pecking order. Now, you may be wondering, what's the big deal? It's just a harmless little game that we play. It really doesn't matter. Is that so? Actually, biblically, it does matter. Think about it. There's something else that happens once the pecking order is established. And that's what the Apostle Paul is addressing here in our passage today. Because once the pecking order is established, then the preferential treatment starts. Once we determine where others fit and where our place is in the pecking order, then we treat those above us with honor, respect, admiration. We try to please them. But for those below us on the pecking order, we tend to be a little less sensitive, maybe a little more callous. Often, without even thinking about it, we can hold them in contempt. We don't peck at those above us, but we don't hesitate to nail those below us. And that means when the boss asks for a favor, they're probably gonna get it from me or from you. When the VIP or the superstar wants preferential treatment, they usually get it. But what happens when it's the custodian who has a question for you? Or the single mom next door who asks for a small favor again? Or the teen down the street who looks like he needs someone to talk to? How do we react then? Often it depends on our mood or maybe our attitude. You know, it's just you, it's only you. Honor and respect become optional. After all, they're below us on the pecking order. And that's just the way it is. Hang on a second, this is bothering me. Okay. So, simply put, God says in his word that he doesn't like this system. This system is foreign to his values. Think about what Jesus said, Mark 9, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And in Luke 9, he said, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. 
Last and least. That's what he said. And that means if you're just showing honor and respect to the VIPs, you're no different from anyone else. You're just following your instincts. Chickens do that. But when we focus in on caring for chickens 8, 9, and 10, then you're showing that you're followers of Jesus. It was just a year ago that we finished the Gospel of Mark. And if there's anything clear in how Jesus lived, it's that he spent a lot of time turning the pecking order upside down. And so here in our text today, the Apostle Paul is taking the teaching of Jesus and applying it to the church and us. So let's start with the motivation for humility, verse 1. The motivation for humility. Paul pulls out all the rhetorical stops in these few verses in order to galvanize the Philippians' heart, soul, and mind towards a vision of unity within the church. And these few short verses, which are just one sentence, they're about being a part of the community of the faithful. And so Paul pulls the rug out from under this prevailing honor-based um, culture, which is much like our own, with his call to humility and actively seeking the honor of others. All this is with an eye towards offering a hymn to Christ, the one to whom every knee will bow, which Frank is going to lead us through next week. So Paul finished chapter 1 by stressing the importance of faithful suffering for Christ. But he is not unaware that in the face of adversity and fear, that selfishness tends to rule our conduct. So the apostle is exhorting the church to have a single purpose in the face of strong enemies. Now back at the time of the Revolutionary War, Franklin, uh, Benjamin Franklin declared, uh, we must all hang together or assuredly we shall all hang separately. I think Paul would have resonated with that as he wrote the Philippians. He recognized that not every enemy is outside the church. Often the real dangers are power grabs or prima donnas or prestige-seeking believers who weaken the body of Christ from within the church itself. And it's to this lethal danger that Paul turns his attention at the beginning of chapter 2. He has launched into a section of the letter in which he's urging us to live like Christians. Now, if you remember, our membership vows at Potomac Hills and throughout the PCA require us to affirm that we resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that we will endeavor to live as becomes followers of Jesus Christ. Well, that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about what it means to live as becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, what it means to live a life that's been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, he opens with a series of four if statements, maybe better understood as since statements or because statements, and that's because the if refers to certainties, not possibilities. And together, these four motivations remind us of the love that binds us together as God's people. So look with me at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. The first motivation is that uh, there is encouragement in Christ. 
We have the blessing of knowing Christ and being found in him, Philippians 3. We've been given the gift of faith, Philippians 1. Does anything lift our spirits more than knowing that we are in Christ? In the midst of trials and suffering, we are to find encouragement in our relationship with Jesus. Second, we have the comfort of love. This is presumably a reference to the love of Christ that comforts and consoles us. He is ours and we is, are his. But it might be a reference to the love for one another that flows out of this relationship with Jesus. This connection was made in Philippians 1 where Paul said that he loves the church with the affection of Christ Jesus. We know God's love and his love makes us love others. Third, we participate in the spirit. The Greek word translated participation is the same word used in Philippians 1.5 that mentions your partnership in the gospel. The word is koinonia. It's usually translated as fellowship. The Spirit unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ, Philippians 1.27, and as partners in the gospel. Paul's aware that disunity threatens the Philippians so he reminds them of the spirit-produced fellowship that they share. And then fourth, we share affection and sympathy. And this affection and sympathy, some versions use tenderness and compassion. This flows out of our union with Christ. Christ has loved us with amazing tenderness. He has shown us infinite affection. Sympathy and compassion have come to us from the source of all mercy, our great God. And so we share in a common experience of being the objects of God's compassion. And so this tender care should cause us to look out for the interests of others and to serve sacrificially. We all enjoy these amazing blessings as fellow believers. And notice Paul's approach here. He's not only warm and pastoral, he's also quick to mention the blessings of the gospel before he gives certain exhortations. If all you ever do is tell people what they're supposed to do, they'll eventually get burned out. We have to remind people of the blessings before giving the commands. These blessings are what motivate us to a life of humility. We've been given the love of God the Father, the encouragement of Christ the Son, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, filled with the affection and sympathy of the triune God. And it's all undeserved. If that's not humbling, I don't know what is. Let's move on to the primary command of the text, which is in verse two, and it gives us the purpose of humility, the purpose of humility. To be united, Paul says, the church must have the same mindset. Instead of having petty squabbles and rivalries, they should remember their identities and common mission. So he says, verse 2, complete my joy. That's the overarching command of this section. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Unity is a precious gift of the Spirit. It's to be prized. It's to be sought, it's to be guarded at all costs. And when it's lost, it's hard to regain. And the Apostle Paul understood that well. He sensed that underneath the surface, there were some 
cracks in the church that if not repaired would eventually fragment the congregation. And like any good builder, he wants to repair those cracks while they're still small and easy to fill. Now behind this fact lies a spiritual truth. Today's blessing doesn't guarantee tomorrow's success. A church may do well for a long period of time only to go through a crisis that leads to a period of decline. I believe that Satan loves to attack churches when they're doing well. If Satan can't destroy from without, he'll attack from within. If he can't destroy the doctrine, he'll attack the moral life of the leaders. If he can't corrupt the moral life of the leaders, he'll attack the unity of the body. But one way or the other, he will attack. So here the Apostle Paul presses us to complete his joy by having the same mind. By that he means being like-minded. The word mind is actually a verb. It can be translated that you think the same thing. He wants us to have the same outlook, the same mindset. So what's he talking about? He's talking about having the mind of Christ. This is the same word he's gonna use in verse five, uh, the, the next, uh, first verse of the next passage where he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He calls on you to have the same mind. Now, he's not saying you have to think about everything the same way. He is saying, I want you to have the mind of Christ. I want you to have the same attitude in you, the same disposition, the same outlook that Jesus had. Paul is not saying that we need to think, act, and dress the same. Not at all. It's unity he's asking for, not uniformity. And there's a big difference. Unity comes from the inside, and uniformity is forced from the outside. If you're going to do this, be of one mind, then you have to know what the purpose of unity is. And thankfully, Paul tells us. We're not going to dwell on it because that's actually next week's passage. But very quickly, he tells us what God's plan is, what God's up to in your life, in this church's life, in Leesburg, in Loudoun, in Virginia, in America, in Iran, uh, in Afghanistan, around the world. He's bringing everything in this world under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And he's uniting all who trust in Christ into one family, one body, one people, one temple, so that Christ is given the name above every name. Paul tells us that. That's the purpose of God. And he wants us to have that same mindset, the mindset of Christ. He wants us to have the same kind of love for one another that Christ has for us. We were unloving and sinned against Christ and Christ loved us still. So surely when we're unloving towards one another, when we sin against one another, we respond by loving that person as Christ loved us when we were unloving and sinning against him. And when we do that, we have the same purpose. We'll long to see Christ exalted over all things with everything and everyone placed under his rule and his reign and his lordship displayed over the whole church, which is united to him. Paul is telling us that we ought to be thinking about the whole body and about this unity that God is bringing about and not just about ourselves. Ten times in this letter, Paul tells us to be like-minded. Why? Well, J. 
James Montgomery Boyce has written that we live in mindless times. Days in which millions of people are drifting along through life, manipulated by mass media, particularly television, and they hardly know it. Few give thought to their eternal souls, and most even Christians are not totally unaware of any way of thinking or living other than that of the secular culture that surrounds them. He says, we live in mindless times. James Montgomery Boyce wrote that in 1971, 50 years ago. You think it's gotten any better? Not likely. I think it's actually gotten a whole lot worse. And if we are going to endeavor to live as becomes followers of Jesus Christ, then we need the mind of Christ. I don't know how many times I've said it uh, since I've been here, uh, but I've said it a lot, that everyone who's united to Christ is united to everyone who's united to Christ. That means everyone who has Jesus as his or her Lord has everyone who has Jesus as his or her Lord as a brother or a sister. We've been brought into a family and the Apostle Paul wants that unity to be seen in our relationships. So when we're motivated by the blessings of Christ, when we're striving together to have the mind of Christ, what's that gonna look like? How will that work out in our everyday lives? Well, Paul says it's most obvious when we show the helpfulness of humility, the helpfulness of humility, verses three and four. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We have finally gotten to humility. Now Paul says that unless you count others as more significant than yourselves, unless you have gospel humility, you'll never get the unity thing down. Why? Because we're sinners. Because we're gonna offend one another. Because we're selfish. And we tend to think about ourselves first and others second. And unity doesn't come about that way. Unity is maintained when humble people show preference towards others over themselves. Selfishness can divide a congregation. Nothing can divide a church more than looking out for number one. When people's first concern is the church is not meeting my needs or the church has let me down, when we stop thinking about what the body needs as a whole and we do what we want, that kind of selfishness divides the church, this church or any church. So the first thing Paul warns us about is to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That is a crucial phrase. The reason we do things out of selfish ambition or the reason we have this division is because of this selfish ambition or conceit. This is actually a single Greek word. It's kenodoxia. Now, kena comes from kenosis, which means to empty oneself. It'll be used again in the next uh, passage. And doxa means glory, as in doxology. So what does it mean to be characterized by kenodoxia, selfish ambition or conceit? 
It means to be glory empty. Kenna empty, doxa glory. Glory empty. That's when we're hungering for honor. We're hungering for respect. We don't feel like we're a person of importance or we're not being treated the way we should be treated. It's one case I think the King James gets it right. It translates it as vain glory. Conceit is the vain desire for glory. This is serious insecurity. This is feeling I don't count, I don't matter, so I need reassurance that I'm okay, that I'm important, that I count. This is a human soul. Lewis Meads, who is a, uh, was a Christian counselor, he says this about pride, because that's what we're talking about, this hunger for glory is pride. And he says pride in the religious sense is an arrogant refusal to let God be God. It is to grab God's status for oneself. And every time you meet someone new, you're unconsciously wondering, how can this person contribute to my need to prove that I count? Life becomes a constant battle to use people to bolster yourself. And there's the sickness, pride, which is the glory for, uh, the hunger for glory, the need for respect, the need to be assured that we're real. A number of years ago, John Stott said, in every aspect of the Christian life. First of all, a lot of you know I'm a big fan of the late uh, Anglican preacher, uh, Dr. John R.W. Stott. I think he was probably the greatest pastor of uh, the late 20th century. Um, probably the most prominent evangelical in the world uh, when he passed away. Um, but he said in every aspect of the Christian life, pride is our greatest foe and humility our greatest ally. Pride is our greatest foe and humility our greatest ally in every aspect of the Christian life. No matter what we're doing, pride is always an enemy to us and humility is always an ally for us. That alone reminds us how important it is to cultivate humility. Now, there's two kinds of pride. The first one is seen in the self-centered person. This often comes from people who are driven to succeed, but it's only success if it comes at the expense of others. Sometimes it's the person who's always right. No one is always right, but they're never in doubt. Sometimes it's seen in the constant contempt and disdain they have for others. I don't know how many of you have heard uh, the comedian Brian uh, Reagan. He, he does a skit called the I Walked on the Moon Routine. It's about people who are always one-upping you in a dinner conversation. You know, you tell them something and they have a bigger story. You tell them you met a star, well, they've met five. You tell them you have a buddy who has a lot, well, they've got a buddy who has more. There's always something better. And so Brian Reagan, this comedian, says, I always wish at those times at a dinner party that I was one of those tiny handful of men who've walked on the moon so that I could just sit there eating my hors d'oeuvres and kind of chewing and watching while this guy goes on and on about cars and houses and vacations. And then I could just say, yeah, well, I walked on the moon. It's like the ultimate in one-upsmanship. And you all know it. You've all seen it. Some of us have done it. 
That's a self-centered person. The second kind of pride is the self-conscious person. This is the person who's always beating themselves up, always down on themselves, always saying, uh, I'm, I'm not very this, I'm not very that, other people have more, other people are better, I'm not what I should be. And they're totally self-absorbed, just in a negative sense as opposed to a positive sense. Every bit is self-absorbed as the self-centered person. In the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, this is the devil's strategy for the humble person. Don't try to get them to boast about themselves. Instead, teach them to criticize themselves. Up or down, it doesn't matter as long as they're thinking about themselves. In Mere Christianity, another classic C.S. Lewis book, he has a famous chapter called The Great Sin. It's about pride. And it's there where he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Notice what Paul says. Count others more significant than yourselves. As he urges us to humility, he refuses to leave humility as some sort of abstract idea. He's giving us something concrete. How could you express humility? Do you just sort of walk around feeling humble? No, you practically, deliberately, tangibly treat others as more significant than yourself. And if you're really humble, you're also going to be helpful. Paul doesn't just say that here. He says much to the same thing to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 10, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Kent Hughes, uh, I, have a, I have a story for Tom here. Kent Hughes tells the story of a conductor of a symphony orchestra. And he was asked, what's the hardest in, in the whole symphony orchestra, what's the hardest seat to find a musician for? What's the hardest, most difficult instrument? And he responded immediately, second violin. I can find plenty of first violinists. But to find someone who can play second violin with enthusiasm, that's a problem. But if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. And Paul is saying to us here in these verses, second violin is not something I want you to settle for. It's something I want you to make your ambition. It's something I want you to long for and to work for. Second violin, second fiddle, make it your ambition. When we take second place for the sake of others, we have harmony. And we make a beautiful sound that glorifies God and reaches the world. And yet if we have this kind of humility, it's going to cost us. It's going to mean the death of pride. And that's hard. Pride is the original, original sin. It's the one in which all other sins take root and rot and fester. And no one's immune to it. We're all infected from conception. But there's an often overlooked danger that connects our, our pride to that original sin. If you recall, part of the serpent's temptation uh, for Adam and Eve was this tantalizing morsel, Genesis 3, verses 4 through 6. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, 
She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The very first sin is pride. It's pride that caused Adam and Eve to look at a piece of fruit and have this sort of imaginary dialogue. Let's see, what do I want? A piece of fruit or everlasting fellowship with God who made me, who loves me, who takes care of me, who is infinitely beautiful, infinitely just, infinitely kind, infinitely loving. Piece of fruit, God. Piece of fruit or God. Hmm, tough decision. I'm gonna go with the piece of fruit. Only rampant, blind, pride can make that kind of decision. And yet that kind of rampant pride is everywhere. And unfortunately, we're blind to it. Looking to the interests of others is just Paul's way of telling us to love our neighbor. But loving our neighbor is hard. In fact, we can't do it. If the gospel were love your neighbor and live, it would be profoundly bad news because none of us loves our neighbor perfectly. But the good news of the gospel is that we have a neighbor who loved us and laid down his life for us. And this neighbor didn't lay down his life for his friends, but for his enemies, for us. We can enjoy God's blessing and know his grace because our Savior obeyed the first and second greatest commandments for us. The good news releases us from condemnation and sets us free to love our neighbor as ourselves. It enables us to count others more significant than ourselves. And this truth is gloriously manifested for us at the Lord's table. We're ready to take communion as we gather in Jesus' names. We are going to hear Jesus say the words, take and eat. It's as if Jesus, recalling the words from Genesis 3 uh, about Adam and Eve taking and eating the serpent's fruit, says, watch this, Satan. And he repeats the words by offering himself as a sacrifice. Take and eat. This is my body given for you. And what were words leading to condemnation are now on the lips of Jesus, words of salvation. This is what enables us to love our neighbor. We've been set free from the bondage of sin and pride to finally be who God made us to be. If you don't get anything else out of this message, get this. Humility only comes. Gospel humility only comes at the foot of the cross. If you don't sit hard by the cross, if you're not constantly surveying the wondrous cross, if you're not constantly saying to yourself, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. If you're not amazed by that wonder, amazed by the wonder of his love, amazed by the wonder of his grace, you will not be able to combat pride in your life. Staying by the cross and looking into the face of Christ is the only weapon the Christian has against pride. Remember that when you take and eat. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close.
Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our need to pour contempt on all our pride. And so by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would change us, that you would enable us in humility to count others more significant than ourselves so that we might look to the interests of others. Help us who have fled for refuge to the foot of the cross where gazing on the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the one who loved us and gave up his life for us. And so we thank you for the one who has made a curse for us, the one who bears all our sin on the cross, the one who redeems us by his blood, shed for many for the remission of sins, turning his curse into our blessing for the salvation of our souls. Grant that we may live like people called to come to his table to take and eat, and in feasting on him we can fast from ourselves. Continue to work in each of us this fall as we learn how to live lives worthy of the gospel. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word, and through the book of Philippians, draw us ever closer to the one who said, take and eat, turning condemnation into communion. Your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.